Since the beginning of the church, persecution has been part of the Christian experience. In fact, the Bible tells us that all who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. Today, an estimated 360 million Christians are living under severe religious restriction. On this podcast, we share their stories. And we answer the question, how can American Christians live as Christ in an increasingly hostile culture? The way of the persecuted is the harder way. And this is the Harder Way Podcast. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Harder Way Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Maddie. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's it's a great day today. We've got a, a rare rainy day. Yes, and not just a little bit of rain, torrential rain. Yeah. But I guess it's like it's like everybody says, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> well, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting that the rain forecast called for uh, a 20% chance of rain at noon. The rain started at 10.30 and it was a downpour. And then, of course, the rain forecast changed and said, look, it's raining. We're t- we- There's a 100% chance of <laughs> rain right of now. Rain. Right now. You know, and I think that life is a lot like that, and people are a lot like that weather forecast. Really? Well, we have these ideas about, I know where things are going, I know life, what life's going to be, I plan for life, and um, and then the weather forecast changes without mm-hmm. any notice, and we think we've got it dialed in. I can see the clouds coming, here they come, oh, wait, they're here three hours early, and it was supposed to be a sprinkle, and it's pouring down rain. Wow, I think that's a really excellent point. And I think that, I don't know, I think that maybe when we try to predict how things are going to go or, you know, what's going to happen, we do that because we are looking to seize some form of control. Because if we can understand what's going to happen, if we decide what's going to happen, we can be in control. Right. Right? Like I heard someone say one time that, you know, the reason why people self-sabotage is because if they just dis- basically subconsciously decide in advance that they're going to fail, they can have control over what happens because they've already decided what's going to happen. Well, I think that's probably true. I've, I've experienced people like that, and I've actually experienced a little of that in my own life when I was younger and didn't know any better. And because it's hard to fail. Yeah. Unless you frame it properly and you understand God's purpose in our failures. And we might mm-hmm. say, well, wait, that goes against my theology. I'm always going to win when I'm with the Lord. And I think that the operating, the, the operating word there is with the Lord. Um, you've got to be on his plan and on his program. But even then it tells us in Hebrews to endure, endure hardship as discipline. And you know, if, if a far father loves us, he's going to discipline us. And if he doesn't, we're going to be like an unloved child who never gets disciplined. So there's going to be hardship and failures and difficulties in life, no matter what unexpected storms. And we know that we're, we know that we're promised persecution. We know that we're promised suffering. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. Right. I think it comes down to a difference of understanding of what, what it means to be blessed, what it means to win, what it means to be victorious. Because I think that, Maybe it has to do with the fact that we live in a society of such abundance or we live in a society that is so consumed with really pleasure and hedonism and and all those things that we have this idea that to be blessed means that we're always happy, Mm. that nothing ever goes quote unquote wrong, that everything is just sunshine and roses all the time. I never experience a negative emotion and everything is just you know, peachy keen. 
but that's that's a very small view of what it means to be blessed because when we understand God's sovereignty you know we see in Romans 8:28 that we're told God works all things together for the good of those who love him but here's the thing it doesn't say God works good things together for the good of those who love him it says God works all things together Right. That means the quote unquote good things in our lives and the quote unquote bad things in our lives, that everything that's going on um, is being worked together for our good and for his glory. Well, if you think about like our, our society in the United States, it's kind of gone off the rails. A little bit. A little and bit. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of people it. doing what I like to call navel gazing. I've heard other people use that uh, phrase as war as well, and it's when you basically, you're all so many of your basic needs are being met that you move to kind of higher needs, and you're just and, and then you, and then when you move from that on to all self examination and self actualization and self revelation, yeah. and you start coming up with some crazy stuff. Am I really this? Am I really that? Is this really real? So many of our problems would actually be solved through calamity. You know, I, I remember uh, I, had, I had an accident a few a few years back where I literally burned the bottoms off my feet. You remember that? Mm-hmm. I had second degree, second and third degree burns in the bottoms off my feet. I couldn't I couldn't walk at all. Obviously, I was wheels up. I had to crawl, but my knees were so sore I couldn't crawl. So I had to drag myself or try to get myself in a wheelchair and. Um, uh, and, and it was funny because life became really simple. So instead of thinking about, well, I have all of these things I have to do, and I have these, I need to finish this, and I have these accomplishments, and I have these responsibilities, it became, can I get myself to the bathroom and figure out a way to get myself a shower today? Hmm. And I can tell you, uh, the first time was I hadn't showered in about a week after my injury. The first time I was able to get into a shower and I crawled in there and I endured the pain of rolling myself over the over the metal railing, and I found a way to get my feet up, put plastic bags over them, and then use that yeah. shower handle. I literally laid on the floor of the shower and showered myself. I had such a sense of accomplishment after that two hour ordeal, mm. and I think that. Uh, uh, Persecution, suffering, challenges, trials, they do have a healing effect on us or a positive effect on us that we're not aware of. In fact, did you know that in China right now, Christians are praying for the American church? And what are they praying for the American church? That we would be destroyed. That America would be destroyed so the church could prosper. Not wow. because they hate America. They love... they. they but they know that our prosperity, our abundance, all of the good things are actually holding us back because they're preventing wow. us from being living independence and being really uh, solid in our relationship with the Lord because because the trials and the hardships, they eliminate all this navel-gazing because you can't be worried about am I a boy or a girl when, you're, when your primary concern is will I have a, enough food to eat so I don't die by the end of the week. Yeah. Bigger fish to fry, I suppose. Or you can't be worried about, oh, which church is the perfect church or which church, you know, is is is, is the one that makes me feel the best or I like their this or that, the best, their programs, whatever. You can't be worried about that. 
when your thing is, I need to be with other Christians to fellowship and we might get arrested. So where's the nearest group of believers I can gather with? You're not going to be driving across town mm-hmm. anymore or anything else. You're going to be, yeah. in, where's the nearest neighborhood expression of Christianity? Right. Yeah. We've talked about that before, that uh, denominational lines really kind of go away when persecution comes because it's not about, you know, are you a Baptist or a Presbyterian or Assemblies of God or whatever? It's, are you, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Are you saved? And, you know, if you have, have Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, what your feelings are about any other tertiary doctrines kind of just is not really that important anymore. Yeah, so on a doctrinal level, also at a preference level, I think that in America we're experiencing the tyranny of preference. Because we have so many choices for everything, really? Well, gas is over $5 a gallon, at least where we are, and it's not long before you're like, I can't make that 30-minute drive to a church that's and drive past six churches on the way to the one that I like. You may need to stop at the first one. You may need to go to the one that's within walking distance. Mm. Um and so that that tyranny of preference begins to be be um, taken down through hardship and suffering and trials, and through even something as simple as gas becoming unaffordable or uh, unavailable. You know, uh, and then we say, "Well, we'll just switch to electric cars." Well, we're gonna have to con- create an entirely new network of uh, of uh, electricity in our country because we don't have the capacity to handle even ten percent of the people being electric cars. So right. that's going to And cra- most people wouldn't be able to afford them anyway. Exactly. So, you know. Exactly. And they are way so much, they destroy all our roads, and they'd be like there were semis driving down every neighborhood street, destroying, putting potholes everywhere. So, And also um, the, you know, the chips and the electric cars are being made by African child slaves, but... Well, the 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 elements of the batteries <laughs> The elements from the chip, yeah. the, the, the batteries. Mo- because all the batteries and stuff are made of cobalt. Yeah. And the cobalt mines are being... They're you being know, manned by yeah. tens of thousands of slaves in Africa. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's really horrible. It, it's very horrific. sad, and I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah, you know, and I think that's one of those things we talk. I'm talking about navel gazing. We should be thoughtful in our consumption. Mm. You know, because God... That's a part of stewardship. Exactly. God told us to have dominion over the earth. That doesn't mean like I'm large and in charge. That means I'm responsible. Mm. And so uh, I need to be thoughtful about. Is there slave labor or child slave labor being used so that I can get my cheaper tennis shoes at Walmart? Mm. Uh, or my battery for my electric car, am I, do I, am I knowingly participating in um, uh, perpetuating slave labor? I think that there's, there's, as Christians, we should be thinking about those kinds of things uh, when we're trying to think about consumption and not just about what makes me feel good? What's my preference? That actually reminds me of some things that went on even here in the United States during the Civil War where uh, people who, it was specifically, I think, typically Methodists and Quakers uh, in the North who were very strong abolitionists who would not, uh, they wouldn't use anything that was was silk and they wouldn't use anything that was I think purple because the indigo was being grown in the Caribbean and certain types of metals and stuff that they just wouldn't use because they knew that those products were being really either not necessarily manufactured but the actual raw elements were being um, cultivated and um, picked and stuff by 
slave labor. Wow, that's has something to say about uh, where we should be going as a church, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's one of those things where we can, can unite. I mean, I don't I think you'd have a hard time if people knew the case of of getting people to say, "No, no, no, we're pro-slavery just <laughs> as long as it's not here." I mean, that's what because you think about the abolitionist movement and its origins of the Quaker in the Quaker movement, uh, uh, it was it was one guy saying, hey, "I own slaves, and I'm, just, I'm I'm fully convinced that this is wrong, and, and being con- and convicted by God, and then going to the church and saying, "Hey, we can't do this," and then them as Christians saying, "We need to make this right, and we need to act like Christians," and so mm-hmm. they literally freed all of their slaves, mm-hmm. and then they paid them. A reparation. They paid them an amount of money. Like here, we, you know, obviously it wasn't what the slaves chose. They said, okay, here's you know, a couple hundred dollars or whatever. And they invited them to live among them and be a part, part of their, their community and, and be a part yeah. of their church. Right. So uh, that was a really powerful thing. But that was not just uh, speaking ideal pie in the sky, which we tend to do as Christians nowadays. It was like putting your money where your mouth is, mm. you know, and really living out their faith and then these folks went around and they preached it to all the other quaker churches to where there were no more quakers holding slaves and yeah, and as a matter of fact it came to the point where if you were a quaker and you owned a slave you would be disfellowshipped and you would be kicked out from the church perhaps there's a moment in time that we're looking at now where this needs to be discussed because Doing the things, and this is this is where I'm, I want to. I think this is leading us. Doing the things the Lord causes us to do will necessarily lead to earthly consequences that we might perceive as negative. You're going to be inconvenienced. Mm-hmm. You going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be uncomfortable. Uh, you're going to be denied your preferences. Yeah, and you may be denied even your necessities. Yeah, you're going. You were, food, shelter, medical care. Right. So even following Jesus and following God's command, uh, God's uh, 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 way, let's say, is going to cost you. Even if no other human being puts a cost upon you, it's going to cost you in some of the niceties and the comforts and, and the positive things of life. There's a there's a price that we pay. That's part of the cross that Paul tells us to take up. It's a small part, but it's a part of it. And I think we as the American church are missing out on preparation for further persecution by refusing to deny ourselves now. And we're missing out on the spiritual growth that comes from being more in sync with God's way of doing things and less in sync with the world's way of doing things. Because everything is spiritual formation. It moves us closer to Jesus or further away. And I think participating in the world's way of doing things and doing things that are funded by or supported by or, or originate in uh, the abuse of human beings is, uh, is really uh, a, a negative thing that draws us further away from God. And I was just thinking, you gave a great lecture last night on the image of God, mm-hmm. on the Imago Dei. Yeah. That's the fancy term for image of God. The Latin term for image of God. What do you think... Uh, when it comes to this idea of um, stewarding our resources and then stewarding the world around us, how can we steward the image of God in other people? Mm. Well, this is a really interesting topic because 
it's really important that we realize that every single person who's ever existed, who exists now, who will exist, was created in the image of God. And the image of God that is on each person and in each person is not something that can ever be taken away. The most evil person, the person who, you know, is denied the Lord, all of that, they still innately as a human being are an image bearer of God. I like to think of it like some people's image has been just covered in mud, but it's mm-hmm. still there. But it's still there. Yeah, and it's not on. something that can that can be taken away. And I think that so many of our trials and things and just the calamity in our world today comes down to the issue of dehumanization. And what I, what I really want to say with that is to be truly human is to be made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so when you dehumanize someone, you are really putting a shame on the image of God that is in them. And I think that there are two main ways that we can dehumanize people. The most obvious and most blatant way is by making someone subhuman, mm-hmm. right? That's like the most extreme form would be something like the anti-Semitism that occurred during the Holocaust or chattel slavery, you know, in the United States and, and um, Caribbean during, you know, the 1700s, 1800s and stuff, where you gen- genuinely are looking at another person and saying, you are less than human. Right. Like you are just saying with your whole with your whole heart and mind, this person is not as valuable and is below human status. Right. And that's the most extreme. And I think that's something that uh, I would say probably none of the people listening to this podcast have ever dealt with that kind of an emotion, right. feel, feeling that way about another person. Right. But I would say that probably everyone who's listening to this podcast has made someone subhuman by maybe objectifying them, right? Imagine you're thinking about someone um, sexualizing them, right, in a way where um, they're no longer seen as a human being, but just as a means for you to get what you want. Yes, and on that same vein, I think pastors and church leaders, uh, because of all the pressure to grow your church and to grow your church's income, uh, and to you know, and it's like it's, we call it nickels and noses. Mm-hmm. Because of all that pressure, they tend to objectify people and dehumanize them un- unintentionally. But by saying, "Oh man, it'd be great if we got old Doctor Smith to come to our church because he would be he adds credibility to our church. He could teach classes, or that lady's a school teacher and she could lead Sunday school and she could do this." And you're like, "You're starting." What this- can they do for me? Right, and so and rather than stewarding them and saying, "Lord, why you brought this person to our church? Now, how do I steward that relationship? How how do you want me to treat them? Because it might be the Doctor Smith just needs a break and he just wants to clean some toilets and not be a doctor on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, um, how can you know you can uh, you can uh, really seek the Lord and find that out? But otherwise, if you're just doing it on yourself, you're, how is this person a means to my end? No matter how good or noble your end is, you're sub you're making them subhuman, making them subhuman, or even just treating volunteers. Like mindless drones. Right. Like you're not really seeing them as individual human beings. It's just, well, I just need 20 bodies for this because this project has to get done. Oh, people literally say that. What about um, making people superhuman? Is that a way of dehumanizing That is, well? and that's something that people don't think about, but it can be very insidious and very dangerous. So when I'm talking about dehumanization through making someone superhuman, I'm talking about what happens when we put people on pedestals. 
when we begin to treat someone as if they are a paragon of virtue that can do no wrong. Ah. They're invincible. Right. Like pastors get like treated pa- that way. And that's the number one example I can think of um, is we treat pastors as if they are so high above the rest of us. Mm-hmm. They're never going to sin. They're never going to fall. They're so great. Right. They're so amazing. Um, something that goes far beyond um, just respect and admiration. And right? it, because it, that's healthy and appropriate. But what gets to this point where we put them on a pedestal and you and I both know what happens 100% of the time when you put someone on a pedestal. Eventually they fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is typically they don't fall by just jumping off. Typically Satan's behind them with like a little finger poking them in the back it just and, and they're just moving forward a millimeter at a time. And then they and then they all of a sudden they fall and you're like oh it took a big fall it was a long slow process usually and mm-hmm. it was it's it's a seduction into sin it's a it's it's a, a movement into mayhem it's it's awful and uh, and it really hurts the church because if I if if I'm Satan and I can take down one guy no big deal but if I can take down a leader of thousands yes. now that's a win because how many people you know, go to these churches where the pastors have these moral failings and when the pastor falls, they fall and they never go back to church again. Well, I'll tell you a good example. I was a part of a church that split and the pastor had a pretty significant moral failing. And um, I, uh, a few years later, probably four or five years after that event, I found the old church phone book. Oh. So I went to the phone book and I called every person in the phone book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I didn't already, some I still had a relationship with, yeah. so I knew their status. But out of 200 people approximately, only about 100 were still actively in church. The other 100 who'd been really a big part of this ministry, they hadn't gone back to church. They were so... Wow. Now that says a lot about, number one, where they were in their spiritual formation and in salvation. And I don't know what the long picture was for them. Like we always say, if if saved, always saved. So if they were... If they were saved, then they will, I believe they'll return at some point. But they were really, really hurt by that taking out of the head man, Mm. you know. And I think, uh, you know, again, for everyone listening, I'm telling you from my personal experience as a senior pastor, pray for your senior pastors. You cannot conceive of the spiritual pressure they're under. It's You might think, oh, I know I've been through a hard time. It's a unique thing. Even the associate pastor doesn't know, or executive pastor, only the senior pastor knows, only those who've been in that role really know. Just be praying for them, praying that they would have strength in the Lord. Pray that they would, um, you know, that they would be personally growing in their in, in their spiritual life, that they, they would be solid and sure in their sense of calling, that they wouldn't give up on it, that they would... Um, uh, really be confident in God's providence, His provision for them, and not give up on that idea. Praying that they would that they would understand that they're going to have hardships and trials and failures, and that God would help them put that into a right biblical perspective, and that they would not lose focus on God's kingdom because there's so many bells and whistles and shiny things out there to distract us from the kingdom of God. But if you can pray that way, those are the keys to the to resilience that I really. Uh, that I discovered in my uh, in my dissertation work for persecuted pastors who are making it. So pray those things for your for your pastor and pray those things for yourself and try to practice them. Yeah, you have to remember that your pastor is a human being, that they have the same, 
you know, kinds of emotions that you have. They have the same kind of temptations that you have. Maybe not necessarily the exact same things, but they have a sin nature too. They have relational, relational drama that they're dealing with to some degree. They have, you know, all of just the normal life stuff, plus the spiritual warfare of being a senior pastor and all of the pressures that go along with that. Because as we were speaking a few moments ago and we said, you know, sometimes pastors can, you know, dehumanize people in their churches by just seeing them as means to an end. And then we talked about how we can dehumanize our pastors by making them superhuman and putting them on pedestals. We can also, and I think pastors are getting it from both sides, dehumanize our pastors by making them means to our ends. We see them as just somebody who's there to, you know, well, you need to give me this kind of sermon and you need to answer all of my questions and you need to dress exactly how I think you should dress and you need to send your kids to this kind of school or whatever or you need to homeschool them or you need to be doing this and saying this and looking this way. And we really begin to treat pastors as like, I don't know, like our dolls or something mm -hmm. or some kind of a toy that we want to dress up and act out, you know, all of our own little desires. And so the pastors are getting dehumanized by being viewed as superhuman and they're being dehumanized by being viewed as a means to an end. And I think that's part of the reason why we see we see so many pastors that are struggling right now. And you, you know, uh, you had mentioned to me um, earlier this week that you had gone to two churches on Sunday. We went to one as a family and then you went to another one afterwards and then at both the pastors from the stage are like man it's really been a week huh mm -hmm. it's been a crazy week then i know for i know both the pastors well uh consider them friends and you know the lord uh, uh has me in their life for a season um and i gotta tell you i know what they're going through and they're going through hard stuff some of it was immediate hard stuff, too. great disappointment, or just the challenges of start getting the school year started, uh, you know, as everybody comes back from their different trips and stuff, and the yeah. school churches fill back up. That's a real phenomenon where we live. And they're under under the gun. First part of September, man, they're really pressured. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I really felt for them. And I, and I just, I was hoping that people in the church recognize that they're human beings and they have pressures they're under as well. And they have families and they have responsibilities. And so I wonder, you know, as we have like five minutes left, and I'm wondering where the persecuted church, as we're looking at the image of God and others, where they have an advantage on us and what we can learn from them. And I think the big advantage uh, is that the persecuted church does not have the the vast multitude of options that we have they don't have the mm. choices for preference you know you yeah. don't got to choose you don't get to choose what kind of decoration you put on your wall it's can i find something to turn into a decoration and they do some cre creative things yeah but i mean that's it's really what something we think is garbage and throw away they do a bunch of stuff to it turns into an art piece yeah. i mean genuinely right and i think they have an advantage because they have to deny themselves uh, of their privileges and of their pleasures and of their and so in doing so they're forced to lean into the Lord they're forced to um, trust in him they're forced to draw nearer to him and that creates a greater intimacy with the Lord and that also creates a, a much more of a steward's attitude because their concern is well Lord whatever you bring me 
uh, I'll receive it. I, I remember when I was uh, doing the doctoral work and interviewing the pastors in Cuba, one of them said, or all, almost all of them said about persecution. We hate persecution, but when it comes, we're excited because we know that God is growing the church. Wow. What a kingdom perspective, right? And so, you know, that's why we, we put out the the, uh, the courier update uh, that you can get uh, with nationsforjc at gmail.com. You can get that courier update, and we share those kinds of stories. We share wisdom and thoughts about that, give you another layer of that. Because they're in, in, they're experiencing something that we may experience in the future, and we're uh, but they're experiencing it now, and we can learn from it, you know. Uh one of the great things that uh, I, I heard from the persecuted church from a pastor named Samuel Lamb was learn to deny yourself now. Or learn to love suffering. Mm. Because, again, seeing God's hand in it. And so we can choose now to deny ourselves. And maybe one of the ways we can do that is to start looking at that slavery issue and to start, and start denying ourselves the pleasures and the privileges that come from consuming products that are produced by the hands of child slaves. Yeah. Right. No, I mean it's really a, a an important thought because in order to do that, it really does take a lot of denying yourself. Because let's be real, most of us don't have the amount of money to, you know, only buy nice, expensive things that weren't made by child slaves. Why do you think that so many people shop at these types of stores where these things are made with child labor? And so, in order to do that, for the average person, it means it doesn't mean finding a replacement. It means going without. Ouch. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that uh, as we as we consider those things, there's a couple of our key phrases that you can remember that you can think about. One is, you know, um, deny ourselves of our comfort, deny ourselves of our control, uh, so and and con- and confront our fears now. Faith over fear, people. Faith over fear. And that we can know we're doing that when our response to um, a question of what we're doing is, I don't know what the Lord knows. I don't know. Seven words of faith. Right. The seven words of faith. And I think that's our real key. My, if that would be my encouragement to the pastors that are, that are having a hard time, that would be my encouragement to everyone listening. That's my encouragement to myself and to you is that we live a life where we say, you know, I really think I need X. How am I going to get it? I don't know what the Lord knows. I really think I should do Y. How, how am I going to do it? I don't know what the Lord knows. I really think I should create Z. How am I going to do it? I don't, I don't know, know what the, the Lord, Lord knows. knows. I really think I should endure A. How am I going to do it? I don't know what the Lord knows. And in those moments, if, go back to Matthew chapter 5. Read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, remember that that word "blessed," uh, the Greek word behind that is describing a sense of feeling satisfied and fulfilled. And when we choose to live a life where the response to life's questions is, "I don't know, but the Lord knows," where we confront our fears, where we deny ourselves, if we choose to live that life. We will experience that blessed life, that life of peace, and that life of satisfaction in the Lord. And it may not look like a million-dollar house and a and a hundred-thousand-dollar car. It may look like a shack and rags to wear and worn-out shoes. But we will have the most precious things besides our salvation. We'll have peace, 
and we'll have satisfaction. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. We will see you for episode 40 next week. Trial and suffering awaits. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Thank you for listening to the Harder Way podcast. If you were encouraged by this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review. To be the first to know when we publish new episodes, subscribe to the Harder Way podcast on your favorite platform. Until next time, remember the words of Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.